0: Ideas are everywhere. Welcome to Lessons Learned in Marketing, the Phoenix Group Podcast. I'm your host, David Bellarive, and today my guest is Jessica Bellamy. I'm so excited for you to meet Jessica. She's a motion infographic designer from Louisville, Kentucky, and Jessica tells visual stories using data and personal narratives. Jessica will tell us how she started her career working with nonprofits and community groups creating ways to explain complex policy information. She's an Adobe creative resident and she's traveled around the world teaching creatives how to make infographics in partnership with nonprofits. She has an Instagram and YouTube series, designing from the margins and a few ideas. And she'll also tell us about a design tool that she's created called the infographic wheel that helps creatives select a visual layout for any data set. Jessica will be in Vancouver at the RGD Design Thinkers next week. Hello, Jessica. Welcome to Lessons Learned in Marketing.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You know, this is uh, this is going to sound bizarre for a guy that uh, works at an advertising agency, but you'll, you'll be the very first designer uh, on this program, and we're almost at 100 episodes.
1: I'm the first designer. <laughs> That's kind of sad, oh, wow. isn't it?
0: That's sort of, uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's unexpected, for sure. Definitely unexpected. <laughs> I,
0: I when I uh, when I uh, noticed that, I was thinking, "Oh, this is a real error on my part. I gotta, I gotta bolster that." So, so Jessica, <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about yourself and and your background?
1: Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, so I am based in Louisville, Kentucky. I have a small design agency called GRID, the Grassroots Information Design Studio. I've had it for about five years now, and uh, we make infographics for uh, nonprofits and community groups. Um, I design uh, data stories for social initiatives, um, and um, what else can I say? Um, yeah, my background is a mix of different things. I have Too many degrees, but (laughs) I worked in research. (laughs) I guess I got three of them, but it's like a long story of why I even did that. But um, yeah, I also worked in research at a psychology lab as a research analyst for uh, almost five years as well there. at least five? It's a recurring number, I guess, in my life. And um, that was before I started the design agency I have now. And uh, during that time when I was working in research, uh, I was doing a lot of community work in my free time, uh, working as a community organizer with a lot of organizations like uh, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth and um, uh, Network Center for Community Change. And I wanted to, to create an agency that was at the intersection of that community work, that research work. And of uh, design. So, of course, infographics were a natural place for me to land. And um, yeah, I've been just working and designing ever since. Yeah.
0: That's, that's, that's an amazing niche. And I want to talk about all those different areas. But first, now I'm not surprised though, I know that you have a research background because there's, um, I guess, it, is it a unique skill to be able to take numbers and tell a story in, in an infographic?
1: It's definitely a skill you have to develop, for sure. I I do a a lot of teaching, uh, teaching people how to not only make infographics, but how do you build conscious and responsible principles into that work and data equity. And uh, it's it's definitely a a skill that you have to work at. uh, uh, And from my, my experience doing workshops, over the country and in some other countries as well, it it is definitely not something that I expect everyone to grasp at the end of the session because you have to build an entire communication strategy, really, like anytime you're looking to effectively communicate with with, um, uh, numbers or to talk about complex systems, uh, you have to really hone your um, um, your skills of prioritizing how you're going to navigate people through the story, like narrative flow and what that looks like when you're incorporating uh, all that data.
0: Mm-hmm. And even I imagine even before that is, is what is the story that you want to tell? Or uh, I guess that's a big part of it. And that's the strategy.
1: Oh yeah. And what is the, the ask? like what's your call to action? What's the purpose of you even designing and being in the the field that I am working with nonprofits and community groups, uh, the call to action is the, the biggest point. You know, it's too, like a lot of people try to just wave, raise awareness, but you don't get a lot of uh, traction. Like if you're trying to actually create impact and you just aren't, you're, you're not just trying to focus on your own personal intentions, then you have to have a some type of ask something you want people to do with what they learn from what you're creating well
0: that's Mm -hmm. interesting and and um i guess the ask could be uh just take part in something or um even whether it's a donation how do you how do you figure that out or work
1: yeah well it depends on the project Sometimes uh, the the apps, like you said, might be uh, someone to make a financial donation. Sometimes it's an engagement in a program or service. Uh, Sometimes it has to do with voting. Uh, Sometimes it has to do with um, uh, changing um, uh, the way that a a system works, depending on, like, if, if your infographic is meant to influence policymakers, like council members, in the way that they do work or the way that they are you know, uh, doing their day-to-day efforts within their their neighborhoods and districts, uh, then having like something tangible that people can do. Um, I've had uh, projects where I'm educating people around a systemic injustice, and so the call to action is specifically calling your council members, so having like that information available in a way that um, uh, lets people know that they have power in a situation. It's important that they have advocacy and agency uh, to make a change happen. Um, yeah. It, it's a variety of different things. It depends on what the project is.
0: Is the ask kind of the foundation of how you go about the process of building your infographics or the story?
1: Absolutely. Like the, because it depends on who you're talking to and what you're asking them. So when, when I talk about communication strategy building, uh, some of the things I talk about is, like, for example, whether or not your infographic is going to be asset facing or deficit facing. When it comes to finding data around a problem, it's so easy to, to find all the things wrong with the system rather than finding something, um, like positive, like the, the data that's in the affirmative of why it needs to change, like what happens when it changes. So, a lot of times when you see um, uh, sort of social justice infographics, they're infographics that are uh, itemizing problems or condemning a situation, blaming whatnot. And that, that communication strategy isn't wrong, but if, if you're trying to use that infographic in your target audience's policymakers, then they're not going to be as receptive to it unless your argument is something that that they want to hear. So, like if if I was specifically speaking to a policymaker with my infographic, then they're probably going to care about um, how is the economy affected. Like you know, if they uh, vote in the way that they that you're asking them to, or do whatever change you're trying to make uh, happen, uh, is, is does that work in a, a positive economic? A light. Uh, is there already a lot of people engaged in this process and a buy-in that, that want this system change? Especially if it's an election year. They're going to care about that type of data point, like how many people are already engaged. Uh, sometimes it's uh, an, a, a, a data argument that has to do with authority. Are there any important figures that are well respected by that target audience that will help them make uh, that, that decision to do that ask, that call to action? Um, there's whether or not there's immediate need, like if it's a hot-button topic or something that has high relevance uh, within that person's community or work or anything like that. Like finding what motivates that target audience and then making sure that the narrative that you're creating the, supports those motivations. So the data points that you're bringing in are, are all aligned to get people to that, that call to action. Yeah, that's, it's a tricky state. There's a lot of work that happens before you actually, you know, get on your computer. Oh, <laughs> it's <nice designing> it.
0: <laughs> no, that's, oh, yeah. that's great advice because I think of, um, you know, even if you, how frustrating it is when you're faced and, and someone points out uh, whatever a social issue or any kind of issue and they just like throw it at you without, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, some sort of well, what can I do? It's really
1: yeah,
0: it, it's hard to react to.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You just pretty much just internalize it if you don't know how to respond. And um, I, I, there's also not as much, uh, um, not as many people are aware of the data resources that do lean more towards the, the assets and the benefits of what some changes can be. Like, there's lots of research that's been done over the last let's see, what is it, 2019, so it's less, like, four or five years that have to do with um, what are the opportunity costs to having uh, all these inequities in our system, like, what happens, uh, like, for example, uh, there is lots of data from economists, like, very, like, well-respected economists uh, who have projected the numbers of what happens when education is free for all. Like we have a lot of a lot more innovation we have a a higher uh, skill set within our general populace, which means more creation of, of different products, which means of course inevitably more GDP for our country and so when you start uh, seeing data points that actually make these um, uh, p- these systemic systemic problems that we've traditionally argued. Uh, like, why it's, why it's bad or why it's wrong. But when we see, well, what happens if it is changed and it's a, a positive outcome that affects a multitude of different spheres And of course, like, people love the money argument. Well, how much money will our country make if, we, if everyone had access to education or if there were no racial inequities or whatnot? Like, that, that can be a motivating factor. And because we have so many great, like, data scientists out there, there are so many projects that uh, have been creating these great warehouses of, uh, of data that are assets um, to help make the arguments in the affirmative rather than always having to make arguments in the negative. Like, we're going to lose the planet if we don't change things. Well, let's talk about, like, the quality of life that we'll have that's different if we change things, like if we're talking about climate change, you know. Yeah.
0: I really love so that sometimes that speaks down. louder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's one that yeah, so- it
1: speaks louder.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this it it you feel much better if you know that you can actually impact something, and and there'll be a something other than just no negatives. So why yeah, exactly? <laughs> <laughs> why infographics? Why are they so powerful?
1: Why are they so powerful? Well, I would say it's because number one, we are a very visual society and it is like we what is it um there's there's some numbers I'm not even gonna to try to remember the numbers uh, like we're we're able to um, comprehend information easier when it's used in um, uh, in, in tandem with visuals with images uh, people grasp concepts quicker uh, people are able to make connections and correlations easier and so there's there's a lot more access to information that's possible through um the design of of information. And so that's why communication arts is, is at the the heart of everything I do. Um there's actually a pretty neat story of why I started Grids. I can tell you that. I'm very long winded. So you have to just tell me. Yeah. No, I'm running for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely, because um, uh, it, it all kind of ties into to why, I, why infographics for me, but um, so, like I said, I was working in research. I had a very uh, nice and steady job that was paying the bills as a research analyst at the University of Louisville, working in the neurodevelopmental science lab, uh, but I was doing a lot of community organizing work on the side just to... Because I I just wanted to to do more things with with people and be more active as a, you know, I'm a citizen of this city. So I I wanted to be a part of making sure that it was better better and healthier for all. Anyway, so uh, I was doing some community organizing work. with with the organization, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, and a project that we took on as the economic justice team was around a very specific neighborhood here in Louisville, and it's actually the neighborhood that I'm originally from, um, and it's called Smoketown. Smoketown is the oldest historically black neighborhood in Louisville and that's where all of my family is my family has businesses there Um, it was the only place that african americans were allowed to live after the civil war and it's traditionally uh, been divested in by the by the city um you know we can argue why we think that but is we're not going to jump into it so (laughs) recent recently like well during that time period it was like 2013 2014 Um, I guess it had to be 2013, Um, the effects of a um, – so during the Obama administration, there was a program called Hope 6, and Hope 6 is a program where uh, the intention was to take the public housing units around the country, and because they were – Kind of, they they had concentrations of high poverty and of crime. Their goal was to uh, break down these public housing units and build uh, multi-income uh, uh, apartments, right? So they, that way that you can have less concentration of poverty and you can have mixed income uh, in areas, and that would stimulate development and interest. That that was the goal of the program. It's called Hope Six, and so it affected Smoketown in a way. That when um, when it um, happened in Louisville, of course, our public housing units went down, uh, but that displaced a large number of people, and um, a lot of developers within Louisville saw this as an opportunity. Here's an outflux of a lot of uh, of folks from Smoketown. Is this this uh, neighborhood is right next to the center of the city this is an opportunity to expand the urban core so a lot of developers took interest in the area and wanted to start buying bundles of property which Mm -hmm. is what they they did and um uh as the, the the destruction of shepherd square uh caused a kind of ripple effect like because uh so many young people were displaced to elsewhere in the city, like the, communi- the community center had to close because it lost funding because it didn't serve as much of a population as it did when when um, Shepherd Square was active. And the community lost a lot of its resources, which there weren't very many resources there to begin with. It's definitely a community where people had to make their own everything. Like even the community center was literally just established to be a vocational uh, spot for African-Americans back in the 1800s and so um, that was gone and it held even a lot of the history and so forth and so on. Anyway, back to a uh, for the Commonwealth, we decided that uh, because there was all this interest in the neighborhood uh, and all this money was coming in that the voices of the community members, the residents that were still there, like that they should be on a platform because Uh, if the neighborhood was going to change, it's a change with them, with their input, with their concerns, being a part of the construction of whatever Smoketown is going to look like. Mm -hmm. And so we did a survey, a survey. And so we went uh, around the neighborhood. It had, the survey had 55 questions. We were sitting on porches and living rooms. And we were trying to learn more about um, what the priorities and concerns were of the residents, what were assets in the neighborhood that they would like to see, get more resources, uh, you know, help them like, like put together all their thoughts. And once we had all this data, uh, we knew that we wanted to create some type of report, but we were really scared that whatever report that we would create would just sit on somebody's shelf Mm -hmm. that um, I took it upon myself to uh, offer to make infographics. Like I'd only made infographics in college at the time, uh, which was uh, a couple years uh, in the past at that point, cause I'm working, doing research for a while. And, but I was like, well, I could still do it. I still have design skills. Let me just like dust off these, <laughs> these hands and, <laughs> and try it. So I had, I pretty much spent a, a weekend drinking monster and coffee together, which is not good for your heart. Don't do it. <laughs> and, and made a bunch of infographics for this report. And when we released it, um, we actually didn't get, uh, the reaction that we expected, like we had this whole release launch and um, the community came out in droves and a lot of people were really excited about the report. We are putting the report in the hands of uh, council members from the area, uh, putting it in the hands of developers, putting it in the hands of, of people from n- different news outlets and local papers and things like that. And um, uh, we're putting it in the hands of the residents themselves. And what happened was, uh, The newspapers that saw our report actually were really excited about the fact that um, the people in Smoketown had a lot to say, like something like 86% of them were like regular voters and very active in elections, but hated the council member. And there was a lot of (laughs) qualitative data about that in their report. And so they took it as an opportunity to like serve the pot between the council member of the area and the residents and when that mm-hmm. happened he, he wanted to do like this whole you know optics thing and just like show up in Smoketown and talk to the people to show that he does talk to the people mm-hmm. and so when we organized this forum for him to attend and for the, the community to attend it was so packed it was so packed and we were hoping like okay well the developers are definitely going to have to listen to what community members say at this point uh, because of look how much interest is being generated But what actually ended up happening was the council member in the area was just kind of trying to do what he always did at any any opportunity that a resident had to speak to him, which was refute any argument or claim that they said that things had to change. Like, um, for example, if someone said we need more public trash cans, he would say, oh, we don't have a budget for public trash cans and there's not even enough like foot traffic down the street and all this mm-hmm. stuff he would just try to find ways where say that's not really concerned well <laughs> during this meeting when he's knocking everything down and everyone's concerned down someone just stood up and was like oh well that's a flat out lie because here's data opens up the report that says this that and the other and then everyone just opened their reports like simultaneously <laughs> and thing the you know the whole conversation changed like once the residents had the data available at their fingertips. They didn't have weapons. I felt like I'd created this wonderful, like, <laughs> sword that can now defeat it. Because the argument completely changed. The whole room was just full of all these powerful beings finally surmounting <laughs> this council member who just all he had to do is just sit in and say no all the time. But now the people had the, the data at their fingertips to really argue against all of his, his, you know, dumb assertions. So (laughs) it changed the tide of the conversation. It, It created a revitalization of the Neighborhood Association, who became more active, and it became known that if you wanted to do anything in Smoketown, you had to go through the community. So the Neighborhood Association was mostly like a vetting process for developers coming in. But It was because of that singular event where people had the data necessary to fight their own battles. And so that's why I created grit was literally because of that instant that just made me feel like information graphics were the most powerful thing I'd ever, ever seen in action. So yeah. Uh, that's that, it. Is a, that's the story.
0: that is a great <laughs> story. Super inspiring.
1: Yeah.
0: So would, would, um, would the, would the infographics you think be a critical part of that? Like if you had just put, that data into uh, a multi-page written report, would it have oh, had no, the it same power? It. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: I, I, it absolutely would not have had the same power. I think breaking it down uh, in an easy, digestible way, using visuals made it like easier for people to spend time with it and not have to spend so much time. Like, I say often that time is a resource that we discount so often, so we can't assume that everyone has the resource of time to read, you know, a 10-page document that's nothing but text. Like, why would we assume that? I know, I don't even like reading long emails. <laughs> resource. So, so, yeah, yeah, I do think infographics is why people read it.
0: It's <laughs> really a great illustration of how, you know, because if, if that wasn't a report, it's almost like all the real nuggets or the real things people needed to know would be kind of hidden in the words. And often when we write, Mm -hmm. we kind of try to be more important or more, uh, you know, we write in a, just in a way that people don't want to talk or understand. But I guess the old adage, a picture says a thousand words is, is the case here.
1: True, It's true. And I do think we do data points a disservice when we underrepresent them by hiding them in text or using mundane visualizations. Like I don't always think that a pie chart and a bar graph can, can, can really <laughs> illustrate things because sometimes people get bored with those, especially if that's all you're showing is pie charts and bar graphs. Sometimes finding really interesting ways to lay it out. What,
0: what, I, I was going to mention that because I've looked at some of your uh, work and yeah, it doesn't, there's not a lot of uh, typical pie charts. In there, yeah. What, what's the process? <laughs> what are, what is your thinking, and how do you get away from it? And and what are you looking for to when you when you choose how to illustrate that?
1: Yeah. Well, um, I have developed what I've been calling an infographic index. I'm planning to, to share my, my larger one soon. But like, I designed this thing called the infographic wheel as well to kind of help people break out of their their like smaller uh, layout. Uh, uh, library that they have in their head, like to help people experiment more with different layouts. So I, I have over 50 um, uh, visualizations that I look to. Like when you look at the entire scope of data visualizations that exist and have existed in history, like there are so many, way more than 50. Like I'm oh. trying to like create an index that's that's really large. I'm already at. I mean the I mean the I'm, in the, I'm in the, what, I think 71 is is where I think I last left off. Where I, I literally have a bunch of, of books that I look at, a bunch of different um, artists that I look at and try to think of new things that I can catalog. And so when it comes to designing information, I first think about, okay, will this layout translate my meaning well to this audience specifically, because the uh, literacy around a layout is definitely key to think about. And depending if it's, if it's static or if it has motion, sometimes you, you can expose someone to a completely different layout and it'll still read. And sometimes it'll just make things more confusing. So um, making sure that I'm experimenting with um, uh, and, and exposing people to the layout while I'm prototyping what it'll look like is really important. Like doing iterations and showing people and talking to people. I know it's hard to, to show people work before <laughs> before you send them something really pretty, but prototyping is so important. I think in, in every field, um, and making sure that you're getting that that um, user experience sort of like practice in, in all of your work is really important too. How, how mm-hmm. um, who
0: would you who would you show it to? Who are you? Um, would you take it to your final audience, or would you show peers?
1: Both. I yeah. do both. I prefer to, to show it to my final audience, but I'm it's good to show it to, to peers as well because they're far removed from that data set, you know, because mm-hmm. when, it, when it comes to the, the final audience, like if it's people that work with that data often, sometimes they can get the gist quickly and easily, but that doesn't mean it'll translate if it's uh, shown to another group, if they plan to use it for something else as well. But um, I've gotten so much insight from uh showing it to the the final clientele like especially in in um, projects where it's an international audience because uh, a vector from a compute of a computer even is going to look different from different cultural standpoints. Uses of color have different cultural meaning uh but we we don't all see the the, the same um the word schema keeps coming to mind the the same like simplest format yeah. of everything the same way because of, of our, our cultural and societal upbringing. So yeah, no, there's so much information you can gather from, from just sitting down with more people and exposing more people to work as you're trying to get something created. Are there,
0: mm-hmm. are there some general challenges that you always face when you're building out um, a story with, with data or what are some of the biggest uh, ones?
1: The biggest challenges. Um, biggest challenges. I feel like because like, I'm thinking about this from two different angles. Like there's the the angle of when you're when you're working for a client. Like sometimes there's not not every client I've worked with is receptive of me wanting to incorporate like like do more participatory design things. So. That's usually like almost always a battle. <laughs> like <laughs> I gotta talk to people, I gotta talk to them. I, they have to see things, you know. <laughs> um, but like as far as like just the like, data and visualization component, I, I know like where um, where people that I, I've collaborated with have issues, and I think it's it's um, being afraid to ex- ex- to experiment with layouts. Uh, and like the, a lot of the layouts that exist for visualizing data are in very technical worlds. Mm. Uh, and so people think that you can't use this sort of layout for this sort of data. Oh no, you can absolutely, like, you like, try it, experiment with it. Does it still read? So that's the only point. Like, the, the only thing that matters is its effectiveness in the end, uh, rather than us having our own fears of, of, uh, whether or not we're supposed to use this sort of layout. Um, yeah. How do you, how do you determine
0: if it's, if it's effective? What like, would you ask? Um,
1: I would put it in front of uh, a person who's from the end user group mm-hmm. and, and yeah, just have them look at it and see what they think. Uh, Cause sometimes even if the, they understand what the data is saying, sometimes um, it's not, Invoking anything in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've definitely done plenty of projects where I had to completely rewrite the language to make it more advocacy focused because it was it was too focused on objectivity. When you focus too much on objectivity, that's another way of underrepresenting data points. Because like a lot of the data points that I, I work with are someone's lived experiences, and so um, if you can. If you can speak and talk to and somehow incorporate um, the the voices and the people that are most affected by the problem that you're designing around, you're gonna get you're gonna start designing richer artifacts that have um, that are working hard for you, that are optimized for the the task, and not being afraid to experiment with different layouts actually gives you more freedom than less freedom, as far as telling a visual story that not only translates the data but uh, creates the emotionality in the viewer that you're trying to elicit. Cause again, that call to action, everything. Yeah.
0: yeah. So you're not, mm-hmm. I mean, and we shouldn't be afraid of of really trying to persuade someone or move them into a direction that we're after.
1: Yeah, absolutely not. You know, as long as you're being honest and transparent, like your, your data sources should absolutely be listed. And um, uh, you, you always want to come, um, you always want to come up with a, a narrative that not only is, is languaged in a way that it speaks their common vernacular, but that is, it is fully, fully transparent to the viewer. You, you, uh, it's, the, the ethics of it, like goes down to like so many different points, like the, the way that you're creating the, the argument, the, the yeah. questions that you're asking, like you can be pointed, but you can still be, um, uh, very upfront yeah. with, with all the facts involved, you can do both of those things. It's, it's not something that's easy. It's, not, it's definitely not something that, you know, you can do in 15 minutes or, you know, or a 90 minute workshop, but <laughs> you can definitely, you know, develop those skills and um, create enough iterations where you can successfully do that without being manipulative.
0: Yeah. Is part of your challenge or part of your, I guess, work, finding different sources of data as well
1: sometimes yes Uh, a lot of times like clients have data that they want me to use and I have like um, a series of like this this list of of things that I look at when people give me their data just to make sure that it it not only is authentic and uh, credible but making sure that it's it's not imbued with implicit bias and things like that but a lot of times I do have to be um, uh, put on my researcher hat again and find additional sources um, and sometimes again like if the argument needs to be more asset framed than deficit framed, then finding the data resources that will allow there to be more of a um, positive facing um, communication strategy is a part of the job um, and sometimes also, like, people say, hey, I've, I've got two different sets of data. I want to find a correlation between the two. I think that's kind of a weird thing to say. So a lot of times I end up, okay, we're going to start from ground zero on research. <laughs> we're going <see. laughs> to lay it all out, and we'll talk about it and think about it. And, um, yeah, because you can't just always just say, these two things go together yeah. and just <laughs> ask me to design it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> I like can just hit a button. But, um, yeah, what, yeah. A lot of times I do have to.
0: <laughs> Jessica, what would you give if you could, if you had to give only one piece of advice for someone that was just about to tackle a project like this, like, a, um, da- telling a story mm-hmm. with data or da- data visualization.
1: Hmm. I would say you, <clears throat> when it comes to designing projects, it's all about understanding the system of the problem. You don't have to understand the problem because most likely whatever issue you're designing around, you're not affected by. Um, it, it's, it's actually the most comfortable place to, to be in. Like, a, Make sure you always have those people most affected by the problem a part of the work. So that the work will be richer, but understand that your role is understanding the system of the problem, and that way you will better design its solution.
0: What do you mean by the system of the problem?
1: Ah, good question. <laughs> so <laughs> I, would, I would say that um, every single issue, whether it's, it's um, uh, how pollution affects, A neighborhood or uh, you can name really any type of of project or a problem that affects people and um, but there's there's root causes to every problem and there's realistic solutions that we can't surmise as individuals that are unaffected by that problem Um, there are so many nodes to gain buy-in around um, a problem? Who are all the people involved? What are all the the systems in place that make this system um, um, more tangible, that, that allow it to happen? Uh, and and therefore, like, what can impede it or what can make it better? Like, thinking about the who, what, where, why, when, and how is is so important because um, when we're, as designers, we are naturally um, inclined To try to find solutions, but because we don't have all the information about the root causes, about the about what's realistic uh, for this specific issue, uh, we are actually pretty limited in what possibilities we can create. And so having more people part of that conversation and understanding our role is just understanding the system of the problem, like what's feeding into it, what's coming out and why Uh, it'll allow us to make a communication strategy that's stronger. And sometimes that means that that our design output is actually not a realistic solution for that problem. Uh, which is really good to, to figure out as early on as possible. <laughs> so, so, yeah, trying to understand the ins and outs of the problem is, is so important. If you really want to create traction, like to have a robust communication strategy that affects someone, because it's great that so many people are purpose driven, you know, in 2019. But how much of our work is actually just intentional? It's just aiming at a solution, but not actually hitting our target. Because not many people stop and evaluate the work that they've just done. So, yeah, analyzing the system in depth before we even try to make an output is, is I think, our greatest role. Yeah.
0: Wow. So uh, it's so uh, amazing to talk to you. You're so inspiring. Thank you so much, Jessica. Aww. You um, <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> you uh speak and teach. Where can people connect with you and find out how to get more information about grids and about yourself?
1: Absolutely. Uh yeah, they can go to my website. It's just design. That's where I post what what workshops I'll be doing, where I'll be next. Um, I'll be in Vancouver. Uh, uh, in two weeks next week I think I'm just in another part of Kentucky uh, and it also has a listing of my um, my examples of my work of different courses that I offer, what design tools I've made or that I'm releasing. and there's a direct link to go to stuff about Grid, my agency. that's probably the best place or you can just go on social media but just about me Dr to
0: perfect well i'll put a link to that in the show uh on the podcast and uh, i look forward to i'm going to be seeing you in vancouver i'm really looking forward to that Um, (laughs) i'm I'm looking at your work in a whole new light now so it's been not that i wasn't (laughs) great before it's even greater now you need to write a book
1: thank you
0: you need to write a book
1: i've been trying to write a book for like the last year i just get so busy that's the worst part is that yeah there's too many things that i'm doing i never Sit for too long yeah, you
0: know i can believe it yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much i appreciate you saying that i really appreciate
0: it oh i mean it for uh, i sincerely mean it so thank you again <laughs> for, for yeah. being on the on lessons learned in marketing
1: yeah thank you so much
0: david have a great day bye